This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for once again spending 30 minutes of your precious time to be with us as we discuss the politics of America. And today we have Mr. John Fritzy, the Supreme Court reporter for USA Today. How are you, John? Good. How are you, Jerry? I'm doing okay. Thanks for joining us. So this uh, big hue and cry at the end of the Trump administration about the Supreme Court uh, kind of didn't come to fruition, did it? I think it depends on how you look at it. Um, I think for the vast majority of the term, that's right. Um, there were was a lot of concern that with six conservatives on the court, you would get a bunch of these 6-3 opinions in controversial issues, particularly political issues, and that that would sort of drive uh, the Supreme Court docket for the entire term. That definitely didn't happen. Um, 43% of cases were unanimous this term. Wow. Um, that's, that's more than the past, although it's a little bit under the, the decade-long average. But still, given that you've got a 6-3 majority, like that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, you know the, and, the, the the counter. Just if I could just sure. add, like I think the counter to that is the last two opinions of this term: one dealing with voting rights and one dealing with disclosure requirements. Those were six-three opinions uh, along ideological lines, and so I think it's a bit of a mixed bag about how uh, partisan the term really was. And there was that big hue and cry because Amy Coney Barrett was appointed before. Uh, the new president took office and the Democrats were saying, hey, wait, wait, wait. And she's been kind of interesting because she's probably been a little more moderate than her supporters and her detractors thought she was going to be. Is that correct? It is correct, again, for the for the for the opening part of the term. And what everybody looks at when they talk about Barrett being a moderate is this case called Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, which is a case that really pits uh, LGBTQ rights against religious rights. And um, that was a, a case that actually came down unanimously. But the reason why people are thinking Barrett may be more moderate is that she joined with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh on arguing that um, the court really shouldn't overturn this important 1990 precedent that looks at how the court uh, handles these kinds of decisions, religious freedom decisions. And uh, religious groups would like to get rid of this precedent. And Barrett said, Meh, maybe not just yet. Uh, and so there are some circumstances where Barrett is joining kind of the moderate wing mm -hmm. of the court, so to speak, which mainly means Bar uh, uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh. Um, there's other places where she's with the conservatives. And I think it's a little bit early to say based on one term, how she's going to come down. Yeah, that was kind of interesting because, you know, some people say it was her rookie year, so she was a little more tentative. Um, it, and, and I think about David Kennedy when I think of this, and, you know, everybody waited on Kennedy. What was Kennedy going to do? She probably hasn't reached that level yet, has she? I don't think so. I mean, uh, I think Kavanaugh is really sort of the swing vote to watch right now. You know, Kavanaugh was in the majority with 97% of the cases uh, this term. That's what we look at when we look at, you know, sort of who is the swing vote. Um, Kavanaugh was really in the majority on almost every single case. Then Roberts, then Barrett. So Barrett was number three in that in that mix. Um, you know, I think that puts her in the mix as a potential swing vote. She's definitely one to watch on some of these cases. 
but look, you know, you got to keep in mind, this term was kind of a sleepy term in some ways, right? They didn't get to a lot of big issues. Um, I think Roberts was very eager to keep the court out of these hugely controversial and contentious issues this term as we're coming off, uh, you know, a divisive Trump presidency as we're dealing with a riot on the Capitol, right? I think Roberts is always looking to sort of keep the court insulated from from a lot of passion in politics. And so because of that, they chose cases that gave them less opportunity to be as divisive as they might be next term. So yeah, I guess the big case, and, and when she was appointed, everybody goes, well, there goes Obamacare, there goes the Affordable Care Act, and that didn't happen. They, they supported it. Right. So interestingly, um, the court in a 7-2 decision, so this is the biggest majority that Obamacare has gotten yet. This is the third time Obamacare has been to the court, and the majority is growing each time um, in a 7-2 decision. The court never got to the constitutional issues at play in that decision. Um, you know, this was a question about whether the individual mandate requiring all Americans to get some kind of insurance or or face a penalty, um, whether that was constitutional in light of the fact that President Trump and Congress um, uh, earlier in his term zeroed out that penalty. So the penalty was now zero. Uh, and the question was, well, you know, does this fall under Congress's taxing authority if if the, if there really isn't a tax, if it's zero? And the court never even got to that point, because what the court said was that, look, the people who are suing, namely uh, some conservative states, Texas and some other conservative states, that they weren't harmed by this provision of the law so much that they had standing to sue. So uh, you can debate this term, but I would, in sort of layman's terms, say the court kind of threw this out on a technicality. Um, It certainly never reached the, the sort of the merits question involved in this case. Now the question is, like, is this it, right? In other words, um, do we continue to see challenges to the Affordable Care Act mm-hmm. or not? And and if we do, um, what do we see them under? Or uh, does is this decision kind of the nail in the coffin on these these challenges? You know, it's been challenged three times. Conservatives have lost each time. Um, you know, the act is getting kind of long in the tooth. You know, it's been around for a while. We've been fighting about this for a long time. It keeps hanging in there. Um mm-hmm. You know, I think the question really is, is this it or is there more? And I think that that remains to be seen. But there is a couple of cases and and issues they decided to take. I think it was abortion and gun rights is something that they are going to take up. And those are the big issues. That's correct. And this may be a place where just coming back to Barrett for a minute, where Barrett may be having an influence. Now, it takes four justices to take a case, right, as opposed to winning uh, a case, which you need five uh, out of the nine to take a case. You only need four. We don't know which four that is. Uh, They don't tell us that. Sometimes we can get some clues if they take a case and some of the justices write separately to say, well, I wouldn't have taken this case or vice versa. Um, If they decide not to take a case, sometimes we get opinions uh, from some of the justices saying, well, we should have taken it. Right. That happened with some of the election cases where the court uh, decided not to take them. But you had conservatives like Justice Thomas uh, coming out and saying, hey, I, we should have we should really solve these issues. So then we sort of know where he is, but we don't know where anybody else is. Uh, so the court did take these two hugely contentious cases. Um, you know, one is abortion and we can we can get into what that case is if you want a little bit, some of the details. And the other involves um, gun gun rights. And, you know, I think a lot of folks feel like Barrett probably had a hand in the court taking those cases. Um, we don't know for sure, but there's a good a good look that that's probably 
uh, what happened. And, you know, talk about that, that Philadelphia case and, and what the what the issue was there. It's a fascinating case because what's happening at the court right now, this is a place where it is a conservative court. The court is increasingly concerned. The conservatives in the court are increasingly concerned about religious rights being treated as a sort of a second class right. And um, there's a lot of feeling that the court needs to do a better job protecting um, those rights. And in the run up to the Philadelphia case, the place where that most manifested itself was with COVID. Uh, The court heard uh, several really important cases uh, this year on what's called the shadow docket. So these are emergency cases. They move through quickly. There's no oral argument. And these cases dealt with COVID restrictions imposed by states and counties um, that religious entities, such as churches, synagogues, and mosques, said unconstitutionally limited their worshipers. So if, for instance, uh, California says, look, you can't have more than 10 people in a room, uh, and a church uh, sues and says, well, you know, we have a second, we have a First Amendment right uh, here to practice our religion without government interference. How do those two things square? When Justice Ginsburg was on the court at the beginning of the term, they were falling down and siding with the public health people. They were siding with the government in those cases. Justice Ginsburg dies and Barrett gets on the court. And immediately there's a shift and the court shifts toward uh, supporting the religious entities in a series of cases, um, uh, several out in California, Nevada, and so forth. So you really see this shift before we get to Fulton of the court is looking at protecting religious rights. Then along comes Fulton. And uh, Fulton is is you know probably one of the biggest cases of the term. Basically, it involves a Catholic foster care agency that contracts with the city of Philadelphia that for religious reasons um, does not want to screen same-sex couples as potential foster parents. And Philadelphia says that, look, we require all of our contractors to, to, to screen everybody, right? Can't discriminate. And the uh, Catholic Services Organization says, well, you know, it's against our religion. And so uh, this is the, the battle that comes to the Supreme Court. Um, and what the court ultimately finds is that, um, uh, you know, the court sided with the Catholic group and said that Philadelphia allows exceptions to its rule for all sorts of things. Um, uh, and because it allows exceptions for all sorts of things, it has to allow an exception, a religious exception for the Catholic group in this case. So you know, the, the court decided this on pretty narrow grounds. The question is, like, where else in the law are there places where there are requirements on religious entities where there are no exceptions for religious entities. And I think that's sort of where this is going to head is um, some of these religious groups are going to be looking for areas where they can challenge other laws where there are not religious exceptions. So this isn't over by any means. I mean, I think that's right. I think the, the Catholic, the, the particular issue at hand is over, but I guarantee you uh, there are interns somewhere in a basement in Washington, uh, legal interns flipping through statutes, uh, looking for areas where, you know, where there are regulations or laws that require something um, that religious entities will object to. And then they will look to see, does that law have an exemption? And if it does have an exception, I think you can expect to see that being challenged. You mentioned COVID. And how was it to cover the court since they didn't meet in person and it was all kind of, you know, as we're doing everything, telecommunicated? How was that and how do you think that affected the court? I think it was extremely hard. It's a great question because um, it really was 
difficult in maybe a way that the White House and Congress were not. I mean, I think it's difficult for everybody, right? But but the White House, and I covered the White House through COVID, um, you know, the press pool continued to move with the president, right? Um, we continued to be there as ever, as the nation saw, um, continued to be there in the briefing room asking questions of the president and asking questions of officials. Limited, there were a lot fewer people doing that, but there were still people there. Um, certainly on the Hill, there had, there's been a pool set up and people were going up and continuing to cover stuff. Um, at the court, the court building pretty much entirely shut down. And the justices who have been loath to do recordings or do audio of arguments had to do it in this case. And so what we had was uh, live audio arguments. Um, you know, it was difficult because it's hard to see the interaction of the justices, right? Usually these mm-hmm. oral arguments, your listeners probably know, mm-hmm. you know, certainly like, you know, these guys really go at it, you know, and they don't even let the lawyer start speaking and they start <laughs> pummeling them, pummeling them, right? And, and, and you get a sense based on who's talking and, and what they're saying of where the court might go. And instead they went to this format that was, you know, each justice gets a few minutes. And it was interesting in some ways, for instance, we got to hear uh, Justice Thomas speak pretty much at every argument, which was kind of cool uh, and interesting because we don't, you know, he usually doesn't, you know, doesn't talk. And he, he had the same, you know, two or three minutes that everybody else had. And so that was enlightening, I thought, and useful. But it was far harder to figure out where they're going. It's also just far harder, you know, as a reporter, you want to be meeting with people and, and, and meeting with people face to face. And there was just none of that. Sure. There was none of that. Um, and so I think, I think all of us, it's a pretty small group that covers the Supreme Court. I think all of us are super anxious to get back in that building. How long was it that Thomas didn't speak? He, there was how many years was that that he didn't even say he didn't even ask a question? It was it's it's been years. I think there's been one or two times he's opened um, his mouth on all his years on the court. So it's a pretty small number. And you know, uh, I thought he was a really good questioner. I think. Um, uh, he had a lot of really good questions during arguments. He was interesting to listen to. Yeah, no doubt. He, he, he knows what he's doing. He's a very wise man, very smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating to hear from him. I'm glad, I'm really glad he, I'm kind of glad we got a chance to do it. It'll be super interesting to see when they go back to a, um, a standard argument. Um, first of all, there's a big question about will the court continue to do live audio, right? Um, or, and they haven't said, uh, and that's not clear. And um, then the second question is, I think, for me, is uh, what will Justice Thomas do? And then we had the issue, and and you were around when this happened, when Scalia and Ginsburg were going out and doing this kind of, you know, tour. And is that over? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, certainly uh, the justices have not been out in public uh, in person, but they have been out. And uh, Justice uh, Breyer, for instance, has been out and done a number of um, really interesting talks. He spoke for almost two hours uh, wow. at Harvard uh, Law School this year. Um, he just did a speech uh, uh, in June with a bunch of um, grade school students. So he has been out. Justice uh, Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor did a talk. Um, so they've been out. Uh, but I think it has been certainly more limited. It's not been in person. Now, the justices, of course, are all vaccinated. And what's interesting to me is that they've been meeting in person, right? So they meet in person and they talk about cases Ah. just like they've always done. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, uh, unlike in the past when we've been able to sort of be in the building and maybe run into them or whatever, uh, there's none of that happening. 
right now. And and I would imagine Thomas is is really kind of taking a senior role on this uh, this court. I mean, does that have something to do with him coming forth and and you know flexing a little more muscle on it? It could be. I mean, he's he you know he insofar as he's in the majority with Roberts, Roberts gets to sign the opinion. I mean, the thing about seniority is that you get to assign the opinions, right? So when you're the senior most justice in the majority or the senior most justice in the minority, you get to assign the opinion or give it to yourself, right? And so um, I think Thomas has some opportunity to do that when he's not uh, with Roberts. Although in that case, it's usually just Ro- uh, Thomas and Alito. Uh, that are off. So I don't know uh, how significant that is, but you know, he's certainly a very senior, um, uh, you know, I think he is, he would, I think he, I guess he's the first one who gets questions. I'm trying to think back to the arguments now. Um, uh, you know, after the, after the chief, um, he usually goes first. So, um, there is, there are some perks that come with seniority for sure. So we, we, we talked about the, the, the committee, the, the court not going the way everybody thought they were going. And, and I think Donald Trump is the most irritated. I saw him saying, Hey, I worked hard to get this court this way. And, you know, so he is, and you've covered him. I mean, is he not happy with uh, what's going on right now? He's not, um, although he's not happy with any institution, really, right? Um, you know, he, I think he looks at things in a very binary sort of way. Are they uh, with me or against me? And the Supreme Court is just not going to work that way, right? It's never um, 100% one way or the other. Again, I think Roberts, um, I think Roberts, one of his main desires is just to keep the court out of the fray. And insofar as I think Trump is sort of the opposite, right? He sort of thrives on the controversy and thrives <laughs> on the contention, right? That's what he likes to do. And that's how he negotiates and how he mm-hmm. does what he does. And so, um, you know, in some ways, Roberts and Trump are sort of the polar opposites of each other. And um, so, you know, Roberts was very eager or eager to extract the court from some of these um, election cases that were coming out of, say, Pennsylvania. And we talk about Ginsburg and, you know, long tenure, probably one of the most recognized um, members of the court. And then there's that issue, and, and maybe it's an old issue, but I would interested in get your thoughts when she did not step down when President Obama asked her, why do you think she didn't do that? Uh, you know, it's hard to get into her head. I think that in some of the interviews, she did. Um, she thought she wasn't ready. And as you're noting here, as you're getting at, she um, was the senior most liberal. So that gave her some power to assign these cases and be involved with sort of shaping the liberal position. Um, uh, you know, uh, she clearly had a sharp mind uh, right up until the end. She was asking pointed questions and was still uh, among the fastest writers on the court, uh, often had her opinions out before anybody else. Uh, she sort of prided herself on that. So, you know, it's their, it's their call, right? It's they get to make the decision. The question is, you know, what is the impact of that decision? Well, in this case, uh, the impact was that we got a more conservative court and progressives, I think, are very unhappy with that. Now, in terms of going forward, in terms of seniority, is there any chance that anybody's going to be leaving the court or, or you know, what is the future in terms of appointments? Well, I think the, the big question right now is Breyer. And, um, you know, as as he is now filling into the role that uh, stepping into the role that Justice Ginsburg had, um, Stephen Breyer at 82, um, you know, is under a tremendous amount of pressure from liberals to step down so that Biden can name a replacement before Democrats lose control of the Senate. Right. So assuming that Democrats lose some seats in the midterm, 
or um, you know, the margin is so thin over there that if you have one senator, God forbid, who gets sick or can't vote, uh, that could really change the political landscape, right? And so, and it, that was a great debate, um, you know, when when that the presidency was coming up, the election was coming up, and should they appoint or should? And you know, the Democrats would have did the same thing on on Barrett. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I mean, they would have did the same thing. I think that's true. I mean, who? I mean, two answers to that. You know, who knows? And the other answer is yes, right? Like, I, I think that. <laughs> I, I think that. Um, uh, I think they would have done the same thing. I think uh, the average, um, the average nomination to confirmation is about two months, mm-hmm. right? And they got Barrett through in about in about a month. I think it was. I think it was thirty days. Mm-hmm. Um, not the shortest. Uh, in modern times, uh, Justice Stevens was confirmed, I think, in something like two weeks. Uh, wow. Senator Day O'Connor was confirmed in about a month, so about the same. So there's some uh, precedent to that. Um, this was a little bit of a different circumstance given, I think, Ford, when he nominated um, Stevens, was looking for a um, was looking for a, a sort of a compromise candidate in some ways. And I don't think Trump was looking to do that, right? I think he was looking to put a conservative on the court. And, yeah, and Roberts has been surprising. I mean, the same thing happened when he got appointed. Oh my gosh, we got a Republican lead in the court. And he's been a very um, impressive. I mean, he's been impressive in the way he's managed it. I think he's been fairly, you know, down the middle and, and very thoughtful. What's your thoughts on him? Well, I think he is impressive. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think he is. Uh, I think he's definitely a conservative. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think you look at some of these decisions, like in the Brenovich case, which is the voting rights case, or um, uh, the campaign finance case. Some of the others. Um, I don't think there's any question about his conservative values. But again, I think I also think that uh, more than just pushing the conservative line, I think he's an institutionalist, and I think he does care deeply about the Supreme Court and how it's perceived and how it uh, looks to the public. And I think that is sort of one of his overriding concerns and issues. And when you, and, and this is kind of an elementary question, but it's, you know, it's supposed to be the law and, and the conservatives vote this way and Democrats, how can they find those different interpretations of these laws? Yeah. Well, they did, they did so this term, right up until the very end, you had uh, all of these unusual splits with liberals and conservatives in the majority. You had liberals joining Clarence Thomas in dissent. I mean, it was a fascinating term. Um, I think that has a lot to do with which cases they picked. Um, you know, which case cases you pick at the beginning of the term can determine the results you get at the end, right? Mm-hmm. What, what goes in has an effect on what comes out. And so uh, I think that was that was part of it. But look, it is true that on some of these hugely political issues, you do get these splits and a guy like Justice Breyer would say, well, they're not partisan splits. They're, they're ideological splits, maybe. They're, they're interpreta- interpretation splits. Um, but you do end up with these splits in a case like Brnovich with the Republican-appointed justices going one way and the Democrats going the other. You mentioned the Voting Rights Acts, and boy, that has been fascinating. Just, you know, I'm here in Florence, St. Petersburg, and they rolled out right away with, uh, you know, what the, what their, um, you know, determination is and what they want to see. Uh, how long before we do see them kind of weigh in on that? Well, uh, you mean the Supreme Court weighing in on on uh, more voting rights case? I mean, look, th- this Brnovich case was, was hugely important um, because um, – it involved this section of the Voting Rights Act. So, uh, uh, you know, several years ago, the Supreme Court 
uh, basically eviscerated this portion of the Voting Rights Act that allowed the Justice Department to review uh, what states were doing on election law before they did it. It was a preclearance requirement. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Uh, And so now what all the advocates turn to is this thing called Section 2, which Section 2 of the law basically says, look, you can't pass a law that discriminates against uh, minority voters. Okay, so the question is, what does discriminate against minority voters? means how do you determine that, right? And um, what the Democrats wanted was, if you can document that minority voters were harmed more than non-minority voters, and if you can show that there's a history in the state of racial animus toward minority voters, then you've got a claim. You've got a lawsuit you can file. Um, And in this case, uh, Justice Alito, one of the conservative members of the court, kind of pushed back on that and said that, look, um, it's not just enough that there's some impact. It's a question of how much impact. Uh, Is it a big impact or a small impact? If it's Mm -hmm. a small impact, well, maybe not. Maybe that's not a a discrimination. Um, How do you decide whether there's discriminatory intent? What do you look to to figure that out? That's a hard thing to prove. Uh, And so I think what Alito did in that opinion was sort of rewrote the criteria by which these decisions are going to be brought. For sure, advocates on both sides are still trying to figure that out. But look, you know, this comes at a time, as you know, and your listeners know, this comes at a time that voting rights is a huge flashpoint, right? And all of these states are passing um, laws in, that ostensibly to deal with fraud, uh, you know, that other groups say what it really does is it disenfranchises uh, minority voters. And so... Um, you know, I think the impact of that decision is a little unclear, but it's for sure going to be back at the court soon. And the other, uh, and we may be ahead of the, ourselves here, but we had, a, we were talking about this, uh, provision in the, in the COVID relief about farmers and, and the challenge from farmers who said, Hey, you know, some people shouldn't get benefits because of race. And is that case coming or is that case been introduced? Uh, that that's a case that's slipping my mind, Jerry. Tell me more about that case. I'm not sure. I've, I'm not sure I've come across that one. Yeah, I'm sorry. In the provisions of the COVID relief that Biden put in, there was a special uh, section that said if you're a uh, disadvantaged farmer, you have a better opportunity to get these grants than. Oh, this is involving the minority right. farmers. Is that right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's. I don't think that's on its way to the Supreme Court yet, but it certainly could be. There's been. Um, you know, there's been a bunch of cases about COVID relief and and who's eligible. The Supreme Court. This is a kind of a, a little bit of a wonky case, but there was a, a there was a, a case for Supreme Court watchers. We were paying attention to it about um, about uh, whether uh, there was a group of Alaskan Native Americans and whether they qualified. There, there are cases about um, uh, you know whether whether certain classes of folks can apply for COVID relief um, uh, that are working their way up through the federal courts. Um, that one's not at the court yet, but it wouldn't surprise me if it if it if it winds up there. And it kind of it kind of made me harken back to when they were doing the college admissions, and they had that big argument over that. And um, so right, and that one's coming back, by the way. I mean that that so there's a case out of Harvard that's been sitting at the court waiting for them to decide whether they're going to take it or not. If they do, you see, you've got a big guns rights case for next term. You got a big. Um, uh, abortion case sitting around for next term. And if they take this Harvard case, it's a question of affirmative action and how far can schools go to considering race in their admissions process. 
it's just a blockbuster term if they take if they take all three of those. That one we're still waiting on. Um, the court kind of punted on that this year and and uh, pushed back the docket timeline a little bit. But look, you know, we could get some answers on that over the summer or in the fall about whether they're going to hear that Harvard um, that Harvard admissions case. So this last term really doesn't pretend what we're going to see. Well, I think it it might, right? Uh, so I really think it's a tale of two terms. I think for most of the term, it was um, it was fairly nonpartisan. I think there were two or three decisions that were heavily partisan, and we talked about one of them, which is the Brnovich case. Um, there is a, another case, uh, sort of looking at, at, at disclosure requirements, and this was a a case uh, that involved a couple of conservative charities and the state of California. Um, passed a regulation saying that they had to disclose their donors, mm-hmm. right, um, to the state. So, okay, if you're a, if you're a conservative charity or a charity of any uh, stripe, you have to um, uh, tell state of California who you're, who's paying for you, you know, who your big donors are. And uh, Supreme Court uh, struck down that California law. Now, who cares about a couple of charities in California, right? It's, it's a small, limited fact set. Mm-hmm. What advocates are concerned about is, okay, if it's illegal or unconstitutional to require charities to disclose their donors, is it also illegal for, say, President Biden to be required to disclose the donors to his campaign, right? Or for some super PAC uh, that's running ads, is it uh, constitutional to require them to tell the FEC who's giving money to them, right? Those things are all in place right now. And I think... Um, putting on my First Amendment journalist advocacy hat as much as I can, I think most people would feel like, okay, it's probably good that there's some 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 light being um, shown in uh, the area of, of political spending and who's who's paying for these ads that are on TV. Um, but you know, putting back on my my uh, not going to take a side in a case hat uh, journalist hat, um, you know, there's some there's there's an argument on the other side of that, um, and you know. Roberts, um, uh, who wrote that opinion, uh, tried to suggest that it was very limited and that it wouldn't apply to these other areas. There's a lot of groups out there who think that that's baloney and that um, there's a good chance that um, groups will be bringing claims and challenges against disclosure requirements for campaign finance under this case. Um, that's going to be super interesting to watch. And as this, this other term is coming up, what do you what do you predict and what do you think you're going to see? Well, um, I think that, um, first of all, I think it's going to be a bigger term and a more headline generating term. I think it's going to come right before the midterm election, right? We're going to get these decisions in June and we're going to have a midterm election. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to get these cases on abortion and guns um, right before it. So that's, that's big, right? Um, The the, uh, Mississippi case, uh, the abortion case involves a Mississippi law that basically bans almost all abortions after 15 weeks. Um, you know, you've got conservative states all across the country that are passing these laws that are attempting to chip away at Roe v. Wade. That's the goal. That's been the goal for generations, sure. right, uh, sure. for, conser- for the conservative religious movement. And mm-hmm. they feel like, OK, we finally got a court where we can do it. So you know, that case uh, has a potential to chip away at Roe v. Wade. Then you've got this guns case out of New York. And the Supreme Court has said said in a couple of decisions a few years back that, um, you, you know, rules that say you can't have a handgun in your home are unconstitutional. You can have a handgun in your home. 
what they haven't decided is, can you walk around with a handgun outside your home? Mm-hmm. And, and that is what the New York State, uh, uh, part of what the New York State requirement is about. Um, uh, you know, New York State has some very strict uh, regulations on getting a license to walk around with your gun. And um, Supreme Court's going to weigh into that in huge cases, right? That's going to drive fundraising. It's potentially going to drive uh, candidates that are going to run. It's potentially going to move the election. So I think um, even if it's just those two cases and they don't take the Harvard case, they don't take anything else of interest, those two cases alone, I think, are going to make next term uh, even more interesting than this one. Well, you got the best beat in Washington. I know everybody ah. wants to be a White House reporter, but you and I know that, you know, you're kind of, you're corralled, you're kind of moved. It's, it's kind of difficult. you got all these reporters, but, you know, the Supreme Court sessions are just so fascinating and so important and so critical. I mean, you know, in a sense, they write law and by, by making their decisions and, and uh, for you, you know, for you to be there and, um, you know, to see it all happen, I, I think it's just, um, it's fascinating as you say it's going to get more fast and talk about that a little bit being a white house reporter and a supreme court reporter sure yeah i appreciate you saying that i mean i look um i have a lot of thoughts about this i covered the trump white house for about three years uh, and it was a fascinating and important beat um and you know i got to spend a little time with trump um uh, i got to see uh, i got to see it up close and um, it was a very important thing. I think that the Supreme Court, from my perspective, is a little more, a little, I'm not saying there's not politics involved, but but the Supreme Court in some ways sort of works the way the system is supposed to work, right? Mm-hmm. There's two sides. They get equal time. Uh, you know, they, they put forward their best arguments um, and, and those arguments get mashed together. And then uh, this group of nine decides uh, who who's right. Right. And again, I, I'm never going to say there's not politics, but it's a different kind of politics and it's a little more subdued. There's a little less shouting and a little more substance, uh, I would argue, at the Supreme Court. And the fascinating thing is when you're sitting, there's a time limit. I mean, you've got a time limit. It's not like when you go to a criminal case, you could be in there for eight hours. I mean, this is you got five minutes, you got, you know, and and that's the thing that's really fascinating to me because um, the sparring, the questioning is just, uh, you know, you're dealing with some of the great legal minds in the country and they're all up there uh, kind of jostling and uh, edging it out. So you talked a little bit about the audio and, and as we've been reporters, we've seen that kind of grow and used to be. I remember standing behind the pillars. If you were from some little paper, you couldn't even see him. And the lady used to hold her hand up. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> so, you know, if, it's, if the if Justice Two spoke, she'd put up. So you had to have the scorecards. Oh, that was tough. It's, it's well, true. You're always it's behind everything. a column at the court. You're always behind a column. <laughs> I've been there so many times. Yeah, yeah. Who was that that spoke? It's, like it's constantly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was like a, it was like baseball game. Like, hey, that was a, no, that wasn't. But it was funny because when the audio came out and the transcripts came. God, it made our job so much easier, yeah. you know? Well, the live audio has changed everything. I mean, it really has. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. But do you think they're ever going to go to television? That's always the question. You know, C-SPAN went into the house years ago and it changed it for good, but it also changed it for bad because everybody's right. posturing and you know the case right. where they're they're on the floor speaking and there's nobody in the house. Yeah. <laughs> but do you ever think it's going to go um, television with the Supreme Court? I don't think so. I really doubt it. You know, I mean, you know, as you know, there's a bill that's moved out of committee um, uh, to require them to do that. You know, some real questions about the constitutionality of that, right? Roberts has said, 
hey, like we get to dis- we get to set our own rules over here. We are an independent branch of government. And uh, so if they if they were to pass a, a, a law like that, I think it would be challenged. And guess 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 who gets to decide uh, whether a law is constitutional or not, right? Let me tell you, it's, it, it's not the United States Senate, right? So I'll sit behind a pillar for that one. <laughs> exactly. So I think it's unlikely, but I, I do think that what I do think that um, part of the game here is to put some pressure on the court to continue these live audio. Uh, 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 streams of their arguments. It would it would make a huge difference. They've been doing it for the entirety of COVID. You know, the 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 nation, the, the republic still stands. Uh, the court <laughs> is still respected and venerated, and uh, nothing really has changed except for um, like a lot of Americans have been able to listen in on these arguments and I think get a flavor for um, how these arguments go, which I, I can't imagine is a, is a bad thing for this. Problem. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, gosh, it's just so fascinating to me. And, um, um, you're in the spot, buddy. You're right there. <laughs> right behind the column. <laughs> <laughs> good for you, my friend. And uh, we appreciate you coming and, and joining us. And as a good reporter, you did it from the road, like they used to do in the old days. So <laughs> we appreciate you being on and we hope to have you back as this, uh, that, that these cases get going. I'm so happy to join you. Thanks so much. Thank you, John. We will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, and our technical producer, Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods, our announcer, Dave, and our contributing voice talent, John, the one take turns of the voiceover Tampa Bay. Until we meet again, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.